welcome back to Associated, the podcast where we're making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today we are recording a special bonus episode and I have the pleasure of doing that with the wonderful Petra. Hello Petra, what's going on today? Hey Lois, not much, you know, it's spring time in London. Um, really... And you're still wearing a scarf. <laughs> yes, I am. It's because, you know, I'm getting over a cold. I don't know if people could hear last week that I was extremely congested on our episode and had to mute myself every time I had a coughing fit. Negative COVID though, so that's great news. But I'm just taking precautions. I've got to keep the sound machine well-oiled, as it were. <laughs> well, your body is a temple and I'm glad that you're back to health today because we've got a very special guest, haven't we? We do have a very special guest and he used to, in fact, be my work neighbor before we all went into working from home. We're really excited to have Race Chowdhury from Revolt Ventures. Welcome, Race. Hi. Hi, Petra. Thanks for having me. And Lois as well. It's, uh, yeah, it's a good, good thing we're on Zoom because uh, I think my outfits are questionable sometimes at home as well. I put the shirt on, but then I'm going through a lot of different pairs of shorts at the moment. It's certainly not work-friendly. <laughs> nice. I mean, that's one of the benefits, right, is being able to, you know, roll out of bed into your pajamas and then jump on a call. But how's the last year been for you? I mean, we used to work literally across the street from each other in Soho. And yeah, what, what, it, what has it been like? Yeah, it's been, I think, a really interesting year for everyone, right? I think both personally and from a work perspective. Because yeah, as a venture fund, and obviously we'll go into more detail, but we're a relatively small team. Um, we're really, really close, I think, personally and at work as well. And it's been a bit of a shock, I think, to the system to go from spending a lot of time together to suddenly spending a lot of time at home. And I think it's been a case of being reactive. And, and you know, for us specifically, from a work standpoint, it's been a pivot to sort of, you know, getting used to a lot of Zoom meetings, spending a lot of time on Zoom, which is for everyone. And then um, I think a lot of it on our side that for me was personally different was we're very close to our founders. We do fewer deals, very focused on getting to know and work closely with each individual. And so that was quite a big change to sort of then be able to then have to judge founders, I guess, over Zoom as opposed to spending a lot of time in person prior. So yeah, good changes, bad changes. But I think it's been a formative year, I'd say, the last six, 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe we can start there then with Revolt and you could tell us a little bit about that fund and what, what you guys do day to day. Absolutely. Yeah. So the high level details are we do Series A and Series B investments in real estate technology companies. And our focus is on Europe, but we also invest in US companies in the scenario where they are looking to expand into Europe. So I think the Revolt mandate is actually quite unique to the venture capital landscape, particularly in sort of real estate and in Europe. So for us, I think there's two key mandates or types of structures that we really like to invest in, um, one being more nascent than the other. So the first one is very easy to define, right? And I think most people who are listening to this podcast will understand, which is traditional investments in technology companies as minority stakes. Um, and, you know, traditional minority investment, you take an X percentage of the shareholding, and then we look to support those companies as a venture capital fund would do. A second bucket, which we're starting to make more investments in and a couple in the pipeline, is actually what we call Propco Opco structures, which is, you know, that's our lingo internally, but it's actually the property company and the operating company. And so maybe taking a step back, the reason why we think it's an interesting opportunity is if you look at the real estate technology and operating company landscape, there's a lot of companies which are your traditional venture backable, let's say, tech companies. 
And those are ones in which it's incredibly scalable, high margins, let's say software is a good example. But then there's a second bucket of companies which we think is incredibly interesting, which are companies that often have a physical real estate element. And that can be with leases or that can be with sort of management contracts, but they need that physical real estate to be able to scale as quickly as they would like. And I think examples of that are sort of in dark grocery stores. We've seen a lot of investment there, obviously, um, recently in European venture funding. It can be in logistics, supply chain companies. It can be in sort of single family residential in a way in which you're sort of requiring and aggregating those. And so for that second bucket of companies, one of the unique ways in which we look to structure deals is by that Propco Opco. And what I mean by that is we separate out the investment in the operating company with the investment in, in basically a property company or the entity which then looks to acquire properties or fund properties for the operating company to use. And so what it can look like in practice is basically a mutual incentive in which we as Revolt Ventures would invest in the operating company or the tech and basically help that entity to be asset light in the way it scales. And so it can really sort of grow quickly by basically partnering in an incentivized manner with real estate investors who then deploy into the prop code company to then look to acquire and basically activate the real estate for this operating company to then use. And so for us, I think it's quite a unique model, but we see benefits because I think, one, it means the operating company can scale very quickly with an asset light manner. Two, you don't have to use venture capital equity funding, which can be significantly dilutive in large quantities for the operating company. And three, it lets a lot of our LP and advisors and real estate base actually go into new use cases for their real estate. Things such as, you know, as we mentioned, dark grocery, dark kitchens, last mile logistics, all these different new use cases that are very sort of, let's say, nascent. And so these new operating companies are one in which they have to sort of structure and align with as they think about how they activate that real estate and the use case for it. So, yeah, and then on our background in terms of our founders for Revolt Ventures, they're primarily from a real estate background. So we have Marcus Mayer, who's the CEO and founder of a 7.7 billion AUM real estate private equity fund called Mark, and then Ted Orff, whose background is sort of Stanford MBA, Lone Star, and a combination of other real estate expertise. And so it's, it's very much been a play of can we approach growth equity and venture from a, an understanding of real estate and actually help the founder scale from that standpoint. Interesting. Yeah. I wanted to ask, what's your relationship like with the real estate fund? Because I think we've, we haven't had fund come on that had this sort of carve out system. Yeah, it's been a really interesting one. So I guess there's a lot of autonomy between how the two sit. So the relationship is very much them as what we call sort of a cornerstone LP. So coming in and providing capital for our fund one, and then sort of intertwined with some of the expertise we have from LPs with primarily a real estate background. And of course, the experience we have from the individuals there, we're quite involved in our investment committees all the way through to sort of our sourcing diligence and then implementation of the tech, which has been a big part. And I think that's really been the differentiating factor for us in winning deals. I mean, real estate tech is a very broad market segment and real estate obviously is a massive segment. I mean, the largest asset class in the world is obviously thrown out a lot. But I think that unique perspective of providing founders who are often from a tech background or some different expertise, the ability to sort of navigate the real estate industry from a strategic manner is, I think, where that relationship, as you say, Petra, with our cornerstone LP and also our broader sort of network and LP base has been really helpful. And who sort of 
decided on the the investment focus of the fund? Was that very much something that you discussed with Mark Mayer? Did you sort of take inspiration from that and, and then work around it yourself? Yeah, with, with Marcus Mayer. So it, it's it's actually been a, a bit of an evolution. So when the heritage of Revolt is actually that the first investment was um, was done by Marcus as an angel. So this was back in 2012 when well, prop tech is now the, the phrase that's used, but that basically hadn't been coined at that point. And I think it was a similar sort of, let's say, playbook in the sense of it was very much go after early stage disruptive companies who are changing the real estate landscape. Back in 2012, obviously, it was very nascent, but you were starting to see stuff like omni-channel in retail, e-commerce was obviously scaling up pretty significantly, logistics, supply chains, residential was starting to get more tech-enabled, commercial, you're seeing your co-workings and different sort of flexible office providers. So we can sort of go through all the asset classes, right? And I think the playbook was, with an understanding of real estate, can we then invest in early stage founders and companies who are changing that landscape or looking to disrupt what is a massive market? And that's really been that playbook from the start. So when Marcus first started, it's very much an angel investment. When we formalized Revolt as part of the founding team back in 2017, 2018, the idea was let's take that, combine it with the skill set of the team we then have that we were building as a founding team, which is very much more sort of quantitative P style, growth equity style experience. And so do slightly later stage, but apply that same playbook of then once we underwrite the companies and use more of, let's say, quantitative analysis, we would then be able to help them in a similar manner from understanding the real estate landscape. Right. And then, so in terms of how you spend time with your founders at a sort of high level, what would you say that the differentiator for Revolt is? Yeah, it's a really good question. So for us, we say there are four key ways in which we work very closely with these companies. The first one is very cliche in VC, which I normally hate, but um, we call it sort of value add partner. What I think it means in my mind, from more like giving examples as we run through is we're a small team and we do fewer deals with higher conviction. And so what it ultimately means is whoever does the deal will lead on the deal in terms of taking positions on the board, working very closely with the bandits to scale up. So it's, it's less of a model in which, let's say, we're a broad team and there's a separate portfolio side or a separate team that then covers the portfolio work. We're very sort of intertwined. And when we invest, we know exactly how we'll help that founder. And it's normally very relationship driven. So that I think is the most, let's say, cliche one. But for us, we sort of tangibly know what it means in practice, that one bucket, which is value-add partner. The next bunch of three are much easier to explain. So I think the second one for us is providing a network within real estate related to what I presented earlier. So what that means in practice is giving a few examples. We've had deals in which we looked at the sales pipeline of these companies before we invested and said, look, we can actually introduce you. Very warm introduction to the CEOs of, let's say, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 of the companies on your sales pipeline. And it's just sort of plugging in with that real estate network. Let's say if one example was a construction tech company. We ended up introducing them to several sort of very high profile CEOs at real estate codes we're looking to sell into. So that's sort of a very direct application of where we can connect you on the network side to real estate entities, which can be your ultimately stakeholders, whether it's sales or whether it's sort of partnerships, et cetera, would be bucket two. On bucket three, it's geographical reach. So we have broader offices and LPs um, slash relationships across, I'd say, the UK, certainly Germany, France, Nordics, less so Southern Europe, but some in Southern Europe, and then also in the US as well. So I think that sort of breadth of offices um, and personnel has also been helpful to help the companies, let's say, grow into different markets geographically. Is that people that you've got in your 
own offices or is that sort of network across places? Yeah, it's a combination of BDLP-based plus also our sort of advisory networks, et cetera, that we work with. Oh, interesting. Cool. And so, sorry to go off on a tangent before you get to your fourth key way that you work with companies, but that LP-based, how much do you leverage them in terms of, I guess, being that value-add partner for portfolio companies? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think broadly, obviously, LPs are very aligned with what we're doing, Mark itself and also markets and the individuals who are involved in the organization. And it's been a massive part. So the way in which we invest is very much what we call use case investing. So the idea is the LPs are actually involved all the way through from, let's start with sourcing. So they come to us with pain points that they're saying in the real estate market. And that's a big part of our outbound sourcing. So we will look at those pain points, find the best companies solving those pain points. And ultimately, those are the ones that we often progress to diligence because we know there's a market demand for it. And then if you think about it from sort of what the next step looks like on a value chain, step two is we do due diligence. And ultimately, doing diligence, a lot of the time, we will start to implement this tech into our partners or LPs or advisors who are interested in that use case from the starting point. And then once we've done the investment, it's a big part of both our value add mutually to the real estate base we have, as well as the founders themselves to actually then say, let's sell into these companies, implement into the pipeline um, of these companies and their workflows, because that's sort of a mutual, let's say, acceptance of how technology will change the future for us within real estate. Awesome. That's actually really cool. It's a very close relationship with the LP base, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, exactly. Great. Sorry, back to your, your fourth and final point. No, absolutely. I think the fourth one is actually one that I really like. So we call it sandboxing. It's been an interesting one. So what the idea of it is, is we also like a lot of technology applications. If you think about real estate, a lot of the time, the tech has multiple applications to different stakeholders. I mean, a, a very easy example is, let's say you think about the residential transaction, right? And I think all of us at some point in our lives, if not now, have rented. And I think the idea that you have so many different stakeholders during the rental process, let's say, is an easy example. So you have your letting agent, you have the landlord, you have sort of the tenant themselves, you have different entities, let's say, providing financial services layers on top of that, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what we mean by sandboxing is to say we like investments in which we can come in. The tech has multiple markets or applications to different stakeholders, and then we can sort of help you let's say, expand the product suite with some working along with the tech that you're leading towards to actually go into new markets. So a good example of that is a construction tech company we invested in. When we first invested, they were very much focused towards general contractors and traditional developers. And we actually thought that working with the founder as well, the idea was, can we actually go after home builders specifically? And that's like a big market segment that we wanted to tap. And so we were able to sort of, you know, tap into our network, get a group of people who are experienced in that space and almost run like A-B tests with the company itself to say, how do we program or tailor our product to actually cater that market? How do we get the marketing together to actually target these individuals? And ultimately, how do we boost our sales pipeline into that side of the market segment as well? And I think that's one in which we were sort of very involved in a very successful use case for us as well. Great. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's a huge attractive factor for founders to know that they're not only just getting capital support, but also access to this um, huge range of network and and obviously also the expertise as well. I mean, in the case for some of our construction company founders, they're great founders and they're not necessarily like have spent 10, 20 years in the real estate or construction space. So I think it's it's awesome to be able to tap into um, expertise on your side. Um, How big is your team right now? 
on the deal side, it's primarily myself and one other individual, Ted, who we lead on the deal side. We have a broader IC combination of you know, different individuals from the LP side, et cetera. We are actually hiring. So if anyone's listening, we're, we're, we're very open to have someone in. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're a small team. We do very sort of selected deals, but we're certainly looking to scale that up as we progress and, and potentially look to consider our next vehicle. But, but your background is in management consulting and you've actually started your own company prior to that. Let's dig in a little bit into that because it's completely different from what you're looking at now, really, um, and more related to what we're wearing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So now I've, I guess I've had a, a bit of an interesting journey coming into VC. In my mind, it actually fits much nicer when I put it together. So, so I guess the three things that sort of come in is one, I think management consulting side. So I spent a bit of time at BCG and Bain & Company, and I think a key learning from that that comes in is effectively how you sort of solve problems broadly, but also support companies and the, and sort of other individuals, so we say, enable them to solve problems. So that's been like a very helpful part, not only during the actual underwriting of investments, because it's sort of structuring such that you're incentivizing every individual in the right way, but also on portfolio management, which is more clear um, in terms of how you sort of help founders think about strategic questions and answer them. So that I'd say is sort of my first pillar of interest. Um, the second one is actually just broadly on investing. So even though it's not my, let's say my open CV or background, I've been investing in equities since sort of, I'd say that 2018, 2019, quite seriously, beaten the S&P, I'm quite proud to say, apart from actually last year. Um, so yeah, it's been good from a personal standpoint. I find that really interesting. And then I think to then add to that, I've always been interested in more of like the alternative investment side personally. So for example, options, quant trading is one of the things that I actually really have started to actually work on um, personally, building algos to trade systems. And then also in terms of actually crypto, for example, I got into back in sort of 2017 and applying sort of quant principles to that to do what I call swing trading. So I think there's a bit of an investment background that probably I don't sort of formally present. But it's been certainly something I'm interested in and have looked into, both in terms of different markets, as well as sort of different ways in which you create value within those markets, primarily from a quant perspective over time. And then the third point, so I started a couple of companies in the past. First one was very ad hoc, but it was in basically, I would call it as retail brokerage for fashion. So the idea that you're acting as a middleman between designers and manufacturers for clothing. And to be honest, it was a really simple idea when I first started. Basically, it was find the problem um, and then find the solution that worked for me. So the problem was, I'm very interested in fashion generally. had a lot of friends in the UK primarily back in 2000 and I believe it first started back in 2014 or 13. Um, and the idea was there's designers in the UK who have amazing sort of designs. Let's say Petra Lois, it was one of you guys who graduated from you know, London College of Fashion. Of course, Lois, you know, it could be you for sure. And you'd have like amazing designs, but you'd have no way to manufacture it. And I think in three ways, one is um, low volume, very high quality and at a low cost. And so the idea was, can I sort of take that problem? And basically my heritage and my family background is also from Bangladesh, where garments was booming. Can we connect you to manufacturers in Bangladesh and basically have those designs created exactly to that USP of those three things that I mentioned? The journey, and I can go into this in more detail, obviously day one, you know, 18, 19 year old me going to these big garments kingpins and saying, hey, would you make five hats made out of leather with one feather for Petra? 
they'd be like, absolutely not. Doesn't make sense from a cost perspective. Who are you? Basically, doesn't make sense. Go, you know, this is just summer thing. You're clearly not, you know, looking at this in detail. Doesn't make sense. But then over time, the way in which I cracked the market was to actually look at domestic producers in Bangladesh and say to them, okay, I appreciate you're going to the domestic market here. There's a lot of domestic supply right now. The way you can differentiate is to actually do very small batch orders for, let's say, designers in Europe, but then ultimately it gives you the marketing locally to say you are export quality. And so that was suddenly the sell where they're willing to take, let's say, a loss or a break even on producing a very small order, which then sort of I would manage the deliveries, et cetera in return for them being able to actually market that <coughs> locally as export quality. Super like simple business because you're basically acting as a middleman, you're brokering the transactions. Then at the onset of e-commerce, I wanted to make it more sort of end-to-end. So the idea of building a website and then ultimately instead of them delivering the goods, taking the commission and then not being involved with lowest or designer at all thereafter, it was the idea of can you then build, I guess I should have stuck to it more, but like an Etsy style platform in which Lois then advertises that product, not only gets it manufactured with Rays, but then advertises it on that platform. And it's almost like a, that's a unique shop of collections of clothing wear and that's manufactured and then listed on a shop for, for your incentive to then bring people to that shop front. Ultimately never quite sort of hit product market fit on that, probably a little bit too early in the space as well at the time to do it. But that was sort of my first step in That sounds super interesting. I I see the thread between, you know, the quant trading that you're doing now or like the activities on the stock market and then almost acting as like a broker between uh, designers and manufacturing. There's almost like a parallel of of supply, demand, bringing things to market. So so what about the the next company? Yeah, and and I think a common theme, as you say, Petra, I think what I find really interesting is just finding problems and then trying to solve it, not necessarily in like a known manner. Mm. And actually leads quite nicely to the second one, um, which was very much starting from that. So this was back in 2015, 16. I was actually finished my master's and we were winding down basically the retail brokerage business at that point because it was sort of self-sustaining, but it's a very leaky bucket because you have to sort of keep adding designers who ultimately go to bigger firms as soon as they make it or get successful and go direct to the garments manufacturers. And so if you recall, it was a time when, you know, previous pandemic, uh, arguably to COVID was when Ebola was right back in 15, 16. And so we were actually thinking, I mean, this is with a couple of co-founders, two of my very close friends. And the idea was basically, is there a way in which we can start to look at developing countries in which there's no alternative to healthcare whatsoever? And one of the things that we found very interesting at the time was that smartphone penetration was very high still, or phone penetration broadly. Um, so, for example, if you looked at, you know, regions of Asia, Africa, you would have, even in sort of the most remote villages, you would not only have phone signal, but someone who would have, you know, even if it was one of those small Nokias, if you remember, or sort of the generic, um, you know, early variants of smartphones, et cetera, that they were actually present in a lot of these areas. And so for us, it was a view of the problem statement is that healthcare and the knowledge of healthcare is lacking in a lot of these regions. The second solution or path to a means of a solution was to say, actually, can we use this idea of more like network connectivity through mobile phones as a way of solving that problem? And so what we then started to do was a company called Diagnose. And the idea, and we always pitched it as, is it was no alternative to healthcare, but it was an alternative for when no healthcare or knowledge was available in these regions in developing countries. And then effectively, the idea evolved into being a telephone diagnosis service. 
And so there are three key ways in which we were looking to add value. The first one was to say, let's say if it's a very simple illness, such as cholera, which is relatively easy to treat in terms of um, using like a salt water and sugar solution, is to then work through a game tree and ask specific questions to which the answer can be sort of yes or no, totally automated based on pressing a phone button and actually get to a resolution which would say, okay, if you have a, you know, let's say if you're struggling from diarrhea, the way to solve it is to make a salt water solution at home, which, you know, millions of lives can be treated by that with a very simple sort of understanding of how you solve it. So that was sort of our pillar one of how we then try and sort of alleviate symptoms or illnesses that are very easy to solve. Our pillar two was then to say, if you have symptoms that are very difficult, such as let's say high fever, can we share ways in which information can actually help you alleviate those symptoms? So this was the idea of saying, we can't treat the solution, but we can alleviate it to some extent and using cold presses for fevers, et cetera, and then ultimately actually working with government agencies. So we're in discussion with the British Red Cross and Bangladesh government to then inform and say, okay, based on where your call came in, you do need to see a doctor based on our probability that we think it could be severe and therefore go to, let's say, the nearest clinic, which is located at X. So that was sort of our step two. And then step three, which was from an entrepreneur perspective, very good timing for us, was that we actually started to try and scale it up and had a bit of funding when Ebola was starting to spread. And if you recall at the time, what was very interesting was people were trying to find solutions and ways in which you contain that or better understand its movements and then enable drug agencies to try and not only contain, but then sort of measures in which you can restrict its, uh, its spread. And so our third point was then to say, okay, we're collating data over mobile phone of not only individuals who are calling in and their locations, but also actually calling in and moving unusually through the system to the game tree of diagnosis. So the idea is if they're calling in, had very high fever, you know, rashes, felt as though it was high level of virality with people around them, et cetera, you'd have very unusual symptoms, which you can then use as a predictive element for, let's say, pandemics such as Ebola at the time, and then containment. So you'd understand exactly how the virus is spreading, where the calls are coming from, how many calls you're getting, et cetera. And that was actually the way that was very valuable for us or our pitch to companies to say that data is helpful for, you know, let's say uh, government agencies or aid agencies to try and help and contain illnesses and also broader sort of medical agencies and researchers to then sort of better understand how these illnesses are moving and what's solving them, how you direct drug pipelines to try and alleviate them, et cetera. So that was sort of the last one. We struggled to find product market fit. Again, I think we were too early and we were a social enterprise. So we never wanted to charge the end user for calling in for this service. So ultimately, it was sort of a, a cat and mouse, I think, where we need a lot of data for it to be valuable for, let's say, private companies to then buy the data. But ultimately, until we had enough funding to scale, we also couldn't get enough data to then be able to have these private companies um, look to basically acquire the data. So we did that for a few years. I still think the use case is great. You've obviously seen in Western economies now that telephone diagnosis and video diagnosis is, is becoming a thing. So perhaps, again, we're a little bit early to the market, but I think we will see that push into developing countries. And that was always our hypothesis with, with diagnosis when we were setting it up. And how does your, your founder experience play into your role at Revolt now? I'm sure you must have brought this up in your interview process as well when you were speaking to Ted. Yeah, it was a really nice mix, to be honest. Um, I mean, so my background obviously is, is like not real estate whatsoever, right? And I think it makes a really interesting blend from a team perspective, because for me, it's like, it's again, I guess, going back to what the common thread is across everything that I'm interested in. It's very much looking at where I think there's big opportunities to drive change. 
And I think for me, real estate was that key one. And it was then, you know, a great opportunity to work with a group of top individuals in real estate who are very forward thinking and provides that platform that implies sort of tech capabilities, founder capabilities, as you say, then look to scale up the platform in, in what I think is quite a unique manner. Um, as I mentioned, with sort of the different types of structures of investments we do. And so would you just be able to quickly summarize um, the timeline of all of those endeavors that you've set out on? Um, yeah, sure. So the first thing I started was the retail brokerage business for fashion. Um, that was back in 2011. I was actually just about to start university at that point. And that was one, you know, very simple, ran whilst I was at university, middleman between designers that I mentioned and manufacturers around Asia. Tricky to scale at times, but also brought you know, enough cash in that there's no sort of capital at risk, very capital light as a model. And then towards the end of my master's at Oxford, I worked with a couple of people, as I said, my co-founders to then start Diagnose. Um, so we raised our funding round around 2016-ish. We sort of had some good traction, MVP set up, good discussions early on. At the time, I sort of wanted to um, also explore management consulting, which on the side I was looking into as well as sort of prior to setting up Diagnose. And then ultimately spent a bit of time at BCG and at Bain & Company for the next two years thereafter, after I graduated, which was around 2017 onwards. And then after a couple of years there, met the Revolt team and we wanted to, you know, very early days and was part of the founding team. It was the opportunity to come in as part of the founding team to then go and set up Revolt which we then formalized sort of 2018 and went to market with since then, with our first one. Great. And um, so you said you, you met Revolt. How did the interview process come about? Was it through networking or through mutual contacts? Because something that we try and dig out a lot in our episodes is how people broke into the industry to sort of give tips, advice to those listening who are potentially wanting to get into VC as well. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think I, I'm sure you guys get it too, right? It's a, it's often a very common question for people to ask. In, in my personal opinion, being very direct, I think there's no sort of clear cut or obvious way, particularly if you have a specific fund in mind. And I think it's worth bearing that in mind, right? Because I think funds generally, in my mind, there are two scenarios in which they hire. One is if someone leaves or two is if they're raising a larger vehicle or a slightly broader strategy. Um, so it really sort of limits, should we say, if you really set your heart on one particular fund or one particular play, you almost have to be quite reactive. And I think that's a very honest answer that I don't think anyone can say they knew they were going to join that exact fund at that point in time. And I think that's quite important to, to know if you're listening. And I think there's an element of luck that intertwines with that. So for me, I think what worked is I was certainly passionate about generally just getting into the investment space. And then my decision making, if I sort of walk you through was, there's, in my mind, quite a big variance between seed slash early venture versus late venture and growth. And I think it depends on what you prefer as a skill set, right? And I think, Lois, Patrick, you guys will relate to this probably, which is, in my mind, the earlier you go, the more important it is from a business model, if you think about it, for these funds to be very good at sourcing a lot of deals. So really filling in that top funnel and then having sort of a gut feel and ability to judge individuals and people in particular and the business proposition from a market standpoint. So very much sort of top down is what I'd call it. And that I think is what you should think about. If it's something you're interested in or you're good at or you want to pursue, then look at earlier stage funds. Whereas I think for me, I fit it into bucket two, which was more, I really like the quantitative background combined in a bit more on the structuring side, a bit more sort of have a clear strategy, less reliant on sort of, let's say, 
broadly filling in the top funnel, but very sort of sniping and strategic on the type of areas and investments I want to look at. Hence, I think it fits in with what we talked about, Petra, on like um, opportunities that I like. And so for me, growth equity slash like sectoral focus funds such as Revolt and a couple of others I was in conversation with fitted best my sort of personal what I wanted to look at. I think if I was looking to break into venture, I think I would start there to really define that set of funds or strategies that you are most interested in ultimately. And then I think in terms of practically, like how you then go about it, I really think there's no set formula. You can go through traditional hiring. You can go through conversations, reaching out for coffees with a lot of people at these funds was helpful. I called LinkedIn people at times, some worked, some didn't. I looked into, I mean, I was quite fortunate from a founder perspective that I had connections to venture funds before or venture individuals who helped me connect. But just to put it in, like, in context, I know people who have got into funds by literally walking into the office, was not was turned down for an interview, but then basically said, I really want to join this fund, will you interview me? And then ended up getting the role. So I really think there's a broad depth and I don't think there's a, a set formula. So I think it's about being narrow in terms of what opportunities you fit and want to pursue and then being broad in mindset of within that narrow subset, how you sort of reach out or find different ways to connect. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to do the research and figure out where your skill set and interests would be most effective, whether it's earlier or later stage. Do you think you could tell us a little bit more about the the vacancy that that you guys are going to... Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So the role would be, yeah, coming in, um, I mean, we're very flat on titles, so... To, to be quite frank with you, I think investor early in their career, but obviously with an interest in, in venture slash growth. Um, and I think it's it's a really flux role. So I think going back to what I mentioned before, the interest has to be in bucket two, which is we are openly quite quantitative focused, quite complex in the way we structure transactions a lot of the time and very hands-on in a select set of opportunities or sectors, should we say. So I think it has to be someone who fits that broader mindset and wants to sort of pursue going down that route um, and is interested in that manner. Um, and then in terms of in practice, I mean, profile-wise, we're relatively flexible, but someone who I think for us, that quantitative background is very important in the way we sort of analyze and assess our investments. So that I would say is the key element um, on top of, should we say, the traditional interest in the sector, et cetera, that we'd expect. And where can a potential candidate apply? Yeah, so it's it's breaking news, I guess, on a, on Associated. So we haven't sort of said this publicly yet. We're not sort of openly, should we say, uh, actively looking out um, for recruiting, but we're certainly planning to do so in the next, uh, I would say, next month or so, um, start to be more open on it. Great. So when that goes live, we can, you know, make sure to tweet out um, or the uh, the page. Uh, happy to support that uh, with our with our audience. I'm sure there's a couple of interested people. Fantastic. That would be amazing. So so where can potential founders find you, send you their, their decks, get in touch? Sure, absolutely. So on from a personal standpoint, um, I'm on LinkedIn at Raise Chowdhury, um, name spelled as is. Also on Twitter, similarly, without a gap, so Raise Chowdhury again. We also have a dedicated inbox we also check called info at revolt.com. So that's one in which if you sort of want to share any of your pitch decks or ideas or just want to have a conversation, we're always happy to follow up. And finally, if you want to go direct, it's raise at revolt.com um, if you want to reach out directly. 
Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on Race. It was a pleasure. As always, we are associated and super happy that you've joined us for this bonus episode. You can find us at associated underscore pod on Twitter and write us to associatedpodcast at gmail.com. We're always super excited to hear messages. Any feedback is always welcome and hope to see you on the next season. Bye.